500 years ago in July, a strange mania seized the city of Strasbourg. Citizens by the hundreds became compelled to dance, jiggling trances for days until unconsciousness arose, or in some cases, death. Today, we explore the bizarre plague of 1518. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. Imagine it, on a hastily built stage before the busy horse market of Strasbourg, scores of people danced to pipes, drums, and horns. The July sun beats down upon them. They hop from one leg to the other, spin in circles, whoop loudly. From a distance, they might appear to be a carnival, but upon closer inspection, a more disturbing scene is revealed. With their arms flailing and their bodies convulsing spasmatically, ragged bodies and pinched faces are saturated in sweat. Their eyes are glassy, distant, and blood seeps from their swollen feet into leather boots or wooden clogs. These are choreomaniacs entirely possessed by the mania of dance. In the eye of the public, an abundance of choreomaniacs tormented Strasbourg for the midsummer months of 1518, also known as the Dancing Plague. It was the most fatal and best documented of more than 10 such contagions which had broken out since 1374. Numerous accounts of bizarre events that unfolded that summer can be found scattered across various contemporary documents and chronicles compiled in the subsequent decades and centuries. One 17th century chronicle quotes a very reflective poem. Many hundreds in Strasbourg began to dance and hop, woman and man, in the public market, in alleys and streets, and many of them ate nothing until at last the sickness left them. This affliction was called St. Vitus' dance. Another chronicle from 1636 relates a less happy ending. In the year 1518 AD, there occurred among men a remarkable and terrible disease called St. Vitus' dance, in which men in their madness began to dance day and night until finally they fell down unconscious and succumbed to death. The physician and alchemist Paracelsus visited Strasbourg eight years after the plague and became fascinated by its causes. According to his various chronicles, it seems that it all started with a woman, Frau Trophea, who had started dancing on July the 14th on a narrow cobblestone street outside her half-timbered home. As far as we can tell, she had no music, but simply began to dance. Ignoring her husband's pleas to cease, she continued for hours until the sky turned black and she collapsed in a twitching heap of exhaustion. The next morning, she was up again on her swollen feet, dancing before thirst and hunger could register. By the third day, people of a great and growing variety came to witness this ungodly spectacle. Pilgrims, priests, nuns, porters, beggars were all in the woman's company. The mania possessed the woman for between four and six days, at which point the frightened authorities intervened by sending her in a wagon 30 miles away to a special religious shrine. There she might be cured by Saint Vitus, who it was believed had cursed her, but some of those who had witnessed her strange performance began mimicking her, 
and within days, more than 30 choreomaniacs were in motion. Some were so possessed that only death would have the power to intervene. The more citizens this unusual plague affected, the more desperate the local council became to control it. Clergy held it to be the work of vengeful St. Vitus, but the councillors enlisted the support of physicians who declared the dance to be a natural disease which comes from overheated blood. According to humoral theory, the affected must therefore be bled, but the physicians instead recommended the treatment be given to past victims of this bizarre disease. They must dance themselves free of it. A 16th century chronicle records what the council did next. Carpenters and tanners were ordered to transform their guild halls into temporary dance floors and set up platforms in the horse market and in the grain market in full view of the public to keep the accursed in motion and so expedite their recovery. Dozens of musicians were paid to play drums, fiddles, pipes, and horns, with healthy dancers brought in for further encouragement. The authorities hoped to create the optimal conditions for the dance to exhaust itself. It backfired horribly, being more inclined to a supernatural than a medical explanation of the dance. Most of the onlookers perceived the frenzy of the movements as a demonstration of the magnitude of St. Vitus's fury, none of them being free of sin. Many were lured into the mania. Chronicles record that within a month, the plague had seized more than 400 citizens. The council ordered the stages to be pulled down. If the choreomaniacs must continue their disturbing movements, then they now must do so out of sight. The council went further, prohibiting almost all dance and music in the city until September. This was no small thing for a culture in which communal dancing was central, hence some exceptions were made, as laid out by Sebastian Brandt's publication The Ship of Fools. If honorable persons wished to dance at weddings or celebrations of first mass in their houses, they may do so using stringed instruments, but they are on their conscience not to use tambourines and drums. Presumably, strings were deemed less likely than percussion to bring on the mania. In addition, the council ordered the worst afflicted to be bundled into wagons and taken on a three-day journey to the shrine of St. Vitius, where patient zero of this plague was thought to have been cured. Priests placed the choreomaniacs who were presumably still thrashing about under a wooden carving of the saint. They put a small cross in their hands and red shoes on their feet. On the soles and tops of these shoes, they sprinkled holy water and painted crosses. This ritual was thought to have the desired effect. Words soon reached Strasbourg, and more were sent to the shrine to be saved. Within a week or so, the stream of suffering pilgrims had diminished to a trickle. The dancing plague had lasted for over a month, from mid-July to late August or early September. At its height, as many as 50 people were dying each day. The final death toll is unknown, but if such a daily death rate was true, it could have been in the hundreds. If not an angry saint or overheated blood, then what did cause this dancing plague? In the view of Paracelsus, the physician and alchemist, the first dancer's marathon jig was a ploy to embarrass her husband. In order to make deception as perfect as possible and really give the impression of illness, she hopped and sang, which was almost distasteful to her husband. Upon seeing the success of the trick, 
other women began dancing to annoy their husbands too, powered by free, lewd, and impertinent thoughts. Most would probably agree that this diagnosis looks somewhat ridiculous from today's perspective. Several modern historians have argued that the dancing plagues of medieval Europe were caused by ergot, a mind-altering mold found on stalks of damp rye, which can cause twitching, jerking, and hallucinations, a condition known as St. Anthony's fire. However, the historian John Waller has debunked this hypothesis in his brilliant book on the dancing plague, A Time to Dance, A Time to Die, from 2009. Yes, the mold can cause convulsion and hallucination, but it restricts blood flow to the extremities. Someone poisoned by it simply couldn't dance for several days in a row. According to Waller, the Strasbourg poor were primed for an epidemic of hysterical dancing. First of all, there was precedent. Every European dancing plague between 1374 and 1518 had occurred near Strasbourg, along the western edge of the Holy Roman Empire. Then, there were prevailing conditions in 1518, a string of bad harvest, political instability, and the arrival of syphilis had induced anguish extreme, especially by modern standards. This suffering manifested itself as hysterical dancing because the citizens believed it could. People can be extraordinarily suggestible, and a firm conviction of the vengefulness of St. Vitius was enough for it to be visited upon them. The minds of the Coriomaniacs were drawn inwards, writes Waller, tossed about on a violent seas of their deepest fears. One way to elucidate the dancing plague is to consider the trance states people reach today. In cultures around the world, including Brazil, Madagascar, and Kenya, people enter trances deliberately during ceremonies or involuntarily during periods of extreme stress. Once entered, their perception of pain and exhaustion are marginalized. Waller describes the spread of the dancing plague as an example of psychic contagion, and he draws parallels with the laughing epidemic that engulfed a region of modern-day Tanzania in a fraught post-colonial year of 1963. When a couple of girls at the local mission school got the giggles, their friends followed suit until two-thirds of the pupils were laughing and crying uncontrollably, and the whole school had to be shut down. Once home, the pupils infected their families, and soon, whole villages were consumed by hysterics. Doctors recorded several hundred cases lasting an average of one week. Of course, the dancing plagues have another parallel. Modern rave culture, though usually without bloody feet, the pleas for mercy of our 16th century choreomaniacs, and often with little chemical help, it is not uncommon for partygoers to dance for days with little break, foregoing sleep and food, sometimes shifting their feet with poise and balance, and sometimes leaping with none. Should one said raver be transported to the dance floor of Strasbourg half a millennia ago, they might not feel entirely out of place.